0: it's podcasting time this is just another jerk dispatches from japan the podcast as always i am your host jonathan isaacson that of course has not changed even though it's been a minute since i've podcasted um you know busy with life work that kind of stuff uh but you know got one got got some stories for you today uh, please remember to subscribe to the podcast in the usual places, and while you are there, please rate the podcast. Uh, if you got a few minutes, give it a review. And of course, please share the podcast with a friend, um, because sharing is awesome sauce, to use the phrase that my daughter, my four-year-old daughter, has been using a lot recently. Um, yeah, awesome sauce. Sharing is definitely awesome sauce. So, uh, today's story, well it's not actually today's story, it's going to be, I've decided to split it into three parts. Um, it's probably not really three parts long in length, if that makes sense. Um, I guess a better way to phrase it would be, I've written enough content here for two good length episodes, but... The way that I've organized it, and you'll you'll understand later when as you listen, the way that I've organized it, three episodes, I think, works best. Um, part of that is because there are some horribly violent acts that I won't go into a lot of detail on, but organizing the story this way, if you really want to avoid these horrible acts that involve people dying, um, you can skip over episode two and avoid that. Um, again, I won't go into a lot of detail, but there is some pretty awful stuff in episode two. Uh, so yeah, if you just want to avoid all that, and you can still understand the story. Um, I'll make sure, you know, however I do it, I'll make sure that if you skip over episode two, I'll give you a brief recap in the start of episode three without the, any, without any real details um, so you can still appreciate the full story and not appreciate in a good way just appreciate as in to understand the whole story um, so yeah let, let's get into it um, episode one here not particularly violent at all so I guess this is an all skate everyone's welcome or an all swim or whatever you want to call it Um, so, yeah, let's have at it with our story. And I think it's a good one. Um, okay, maybe good isn't quite the right word for it. Um, as I said, there's some pretty awful content that I'm going to get into, but it is an interesting story. And it's another episode of the Everything You've Never Wanted to Know About Japanese History sub-series, which, I mean, if we're being honest, is, what, half the episodes, more than half at this point? Um, I mean, it's what I like. It's something that I can get excited to share with y'all. So you get more history here, I guess. Um, And today's, well, like I say, our our next three episodes, our story involves hostages, uh, police standoff and shootout, some absolute batshit level craziness from some extreme leftists. We have extreme leftists. Some tangents about terrorism in the Middle East, as well as in Malaysia. Uh, there's some hijacked planes. North Korea makes an appearance in our story. It's not a particularly happy story. Um, so if that's what you're looking for, uh, you're not in the right place at, for here, for this, our story now. Uh, I'll try to get a happy story for our next history story, but yeah, our history story today, not a happy one. Um, so, Yeah, I do think, though, this is probably a side of Japan that most people outside the country and, heck, even a lot of people in the country, especially the younger generation, probably aren't really all that aware of. So let's get into it. In the middle of the afternoon on a cold February day, five young men armed with guns, entered an almost empty mountain lodge in an area full of summer homes, mountain lodges, and other kind of vacation properties in Karuizawa, Nagano. Now, the lodge that these five men entered belonged to the Kawai Musical Instrument Manufacturing Company, you know, the company that makes pianos, synthesizers, things like that. The only person in the lodge at the time was the thirty-one-year-old Mura Yasuko, who was one of the lodge's caretakers. Karuizawa has, for a very long time, been known as kind of this resort area for the people of Tokyo. It's relatively close to the capital, making it, you know, easy to access by train. And but it's in Nagano, so it's mountainous, which means that it's cooler than Tokyo and the surrounding. Kanto, the immediately surrounding Kanto area. And of course, being the mountains, it also gets a lot of snow. And this means that summer or winter, pretty much all time of year, there are tourists in the city. And there are all sorts of these lodges, these hotels to serve all the tourists. Say, all seasons, Nagano is a nice place to be. And a lot of them were built into the side of a mountain, And that was the case of the Asama Sanso, or the Asama Mountain Lodge, that these five young men entered. As I said, the lodge was mostly empty, so Murayasko, the shikse, she's the one person who was in there. Her husband, who was the other lodge caretaker, he was out walking the dog. And the guests at the time, who I I presume were employees of the kawaii, Musical Instrument Company. I mean, it could have been another group that had rented it from them. But anyway, the guests, they were out enjoying the winter fun, uh, ice skating, apparently. So these five men, finding Muta uh, Muda Yasuko alone, take her hostage and begin to barricade their positions. Because if you haven't figured it out by now, these young men were running from the cops. They were members of the United Red Army, a militant, radical leftist organization. Now, the police had been hunting them for months, chasing them out of the cities, tracking them to their mountain hideouts in the middle of the winter. And early that month, the two group's leaders had been arrested as they were on their way back to the mountain where... They, their group had been had been using their mountain lodge hiding out in, say, in the winter in the mountains. Now, there were four others who had been with the five who are now holed up in the Asama Lodge. These other four had just been arrested around uh, the Karuizawa station area. Their bedraggled and unkempt looks aroused a lot of suspicion. But these five managed to evade police for a little bit longer, holding up in the Asama Lodge with their hostage. Now, the Asama Lodge was a very heavy, concrete structure built, as I said, many of these places were, into the side of a mountain. And the maze-like construction of the lodge, combined with its mountainside location, made it a perfect fortress for these uh, militant leftists. They were able to block off all to the top couple of floors and hold the police at bay for more than a week. The entire country watched on TV as the drama unfolded. On the final day of the siege, nearly 90% of Japanese households with TVs watched on TV as the police finally rescued Mutayasuko and arrested the five men. Before that time, before their capture... The men watched the news of Chairman Mao and President Nixon meeting during Nixon's trip to China, which was happening at the exact same time. The news came as something of an ideological blow for these young men, some of whom were Maoists and all of whom were anti-U.S. imperialists. However, they were unable to watch the news for long because the police cut off the electricity on the third day, and loudspeakers were set up Around the the lodge, parents of some of the radicals implored their sons to surrender, although one of their sons was already dead in Gunma, unbeknownst to everyone but this band of revolutionaries. Initially, a sizable portion of the Japanese public had, maybe not a favorable, but at least a sympathetic view of these young leftists who were protesting, in part, the growing police state in Japan. Even some people who identified as being on the opposite side of the political spectrum had some sympathy for these radicals. There was a young man who was quoted in a weekly magazine. It was a young university student. He said, Although I am, if anything, right-wing, I understand the United Red Army members' feelings. Whichever way you look at it, Japan resembles a police state. In challenging the system, their battles have to take such a form. Now, at this point, I'm guessing that if you only know, you know, the Japan of the last couple of decades, you know, really from the bubble economy of the 80s up to now, you're probably saying to yourself right now, a what? Militant leftist radicals in Japan? And the answer is yes. And how? How? So let's leave our five radicals, we'll come back to them in episode three, well, we'll come back to this particular part of the story in episode three, but let's leave them for now with their hostage, and we'll talk about the new left movement in Japan. In the 1960s, some of the younger members of the old left groups in Japan, so you've got your Japanese Communist Party, the Japanese Socialist Party, those are the old left, The younger members of these groups were dissatisfied with the older leftists. The young members basically thought that the old leftists weren't leftist enough and were ineffectual because they weren't taking any direct action. They were all talk no action basically. In 1958 a Maoist group broke off from the old communist party and in 1959 members of the far left student group uh, called Zengakuren broke into a session of the national diet during the debate on the US Japan Cooperative Security Treaty. And some within the political left thought that this was more than the Japanese Communist Party had ever done, and they were impressed. Now, of course, those impressed were, not surprisingly, Largely the younger members of the left, kind of a larger left movement. By the mid-60s, there were at least half a dozen, probably several dozen, groups following all different flavors of leftist thought. You had your Maoists, your Trotskyites, your Leninists, your Marxists, the Luxemburgerites, which I had to look that one up. You can look it up yourself. You know, you name it, there was probably a new left group for you in Japan in 1965. And by the late 1960s, so 1968, 1969 is kind of the peak when all this activism, you know, is going on within Japan, as it was within many places in the world. You know, at the peak, the student leftists are occupying university buildings, battling with police, When the police were called on, were called to break up the demonstrations, there were so many groups of leftists, and they had so many battles with the police that turned violent. Apparently, the student leftist groups, and not they're not. I I I should correct myself. They're not all student leftists. A lot of them are student leftists, but they're also just other non-student leftists. So the student and non-student leftist groups. They had their own helmets that were color-coordinated, you know, color-coded, so they could know which group was which. Um, and the helmets were also useful, so groups could quickly recognize their closest allies in a scrum with the police. So, okay, I'm getting, you know, attacked by the cops. Oh, there's a group that's friendly to friendly to our, our cause. They'll come and help me. That kind of thing. Um, apparently, there are also the anarchists who kind of really wouldn't help anyone. They were just kind of basically, you know, saying, fuck you to everyone, um, I guess. I don't know. I, I didn't quite figure... I, yeah. The, the anarchists wore black helmets. Um, and if, if you... Interestingly enough, if you want to have a quick peek at some of the helmets, um, look up Narita International Airport on Wikipedia and scroll down. It's pretty high, actually, on, in the article um, because... I mean, this doesn't really surprise anyone who knows about leftist movements. The leftist movement opposed the construction of New Tokyo International Airport, which is Narita's proper name. But yeah, I mean, Narita was being built at this same time. And there was some controversy about its location. Again, not surprising if you know about leftist organizations. So anyway... Um, On the university campuses, these student demonstrations got very serious in some cases. Um, Students at Tokyo University occupied one of the big iconic buildings of the Tokyo University campus, and then that spilled over into other universities across the country. Incidentally, and only very tangentially related to our story today, this was the backdrop against which the famed author uh Mishima Yukio tried to instigate a right wing movement which ultimately failed and ended with his ritual suicide um that may have actually been the goal but that's again that's 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 not today's story that's a story for another day um uh, Mishima's another very interesting character in Japanese history um anyway yeah so by the end of the 60s the majority of the students kind of drifted away from the new left movement, which left behind only the most fervent believers in the cause and the career leftist agitators, because yes, Japan had them too. And even as their numbers dwindled, the new left movement became even more and more fractured. Groups splintered off and combined and recombined with other groups within the movement, a few were pacifists, and many were decidedly not. There are two factions of interest for us for our story. We have the Red Army faction and the Revolutionary Left. That's the action. The, the group's called the Revolutionary Left. That's one of the one of these factions. The Red Army faction is the other faction's name that we're interested in today. So the Red Army faction had split off from the Communist League over the younger Red Army faction's push to form, to, to, to go for more confrontational and increasingly violent tactics. The members of the Red Army faction would go on to commit a string of robberies to get money in an op, in, in something they called Operation M, which, you know, was designed to finance their activities, you know, M for money. Yeah, I know. Not very creative. Whatever. Um, I know I mentioned very briefly in the 300 million yen heist episodes. You can go back and listen to those. I talk about one of the biggest heists, you know, unsolved heists ever in Japan. This was exactly the type of thing that the police were looking for when they made their huge list of suspects in that case. Remember, I mentioned it in that case you know there was this young person who had you know who stole money from a i forget i forget the corporation it was some large very large company the, all the bonus the bonuses the, the yearly bonuses all the money and the police basically huge dragnet anyone who was of university age young men of university age in this certain area was a suspect in that case because this was the kind of thing the police were worried about that happens before this, but it was the, it the Red Army faction was not the first group to think of this idea stealing, you know, using theft to finance their leftist activities. Because, you know, police and of course, yeah, police, not exactly leftists um, by any stretch of the imagination. So anyway. Yeah, that was that's what the police were looking for when they made that huge suspect list with like a hundred thousand people or some ridiculous number. Leftist students using theft as a way to finance their activities. Now the revolutionary left, the other group, would take a different approach in their violence. Now they had split off from the Japanese Communist Party, not the com. So the remember Red Army faction, Communist League, Revolutionary Left, the Japanese Communist Party, connected groups, but in different groups. So the revolutionary left split off in the 1960s and they believed that most educational institutions existed for the sole purpose of indoctrinating students to support the state. And as the revolutionary left's tendencies towards violence increased, they went out and stole guns. In 1971, they robbed a gun store in Tochigi Prefecture and made off with 10 shotguns, an air rifle, and something like 2,400 rounds of ammunition. And so many of you probably know Japan has very strict gun laws, but that is not to say that guns do not exist here in Japan. They do very much exist in Japan. And, you know, not just, not the illegal ones that, you know, the organized crime figures might use because those are around too, but hunting rifles, shotguns, things like that designed for hunting animals are available for purchase after you take an extremely thorough gun safety and training course and submit to a very thorough background check. And I believe if I, 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 I forgot to look this up, but I'm pretty sure that if you're going to buy a gun and after you've done your your, your, your training, after you've had your background check, you have to submit to the police a written plan of exactly how and where you will store both your gun and your ammunition. Because, yes, you have to, by law, store them in separate locations. They cannot be stored together, I'm pretty sure on that one. So, yeah, gun shops, guns, they do exist here. Uh, they're, like I say, largely hunting guns. I mean, I've in fact seen hunters out in the woods a few times when I've been riding my bike, and it's always a bit jarring to see guns. Um, I'm, not, I, I'm pretty sure they were hunting rifles, what I saw. Um, I don't know guns well, so I couldn't tell if it was a shotgun or a rifle. I'm pretty sure it was a rifle that that I saw. But yeah, guns in Japan, they exist. It's very jarring to see them. But anyway... The revolutionary left robbed a gun shop so they would have a cache of guns and ammo. And by, in 1971, these two, you have these two radical leftist groups, and they, they were by account, you know, by the accounts of people who are way more knowledgeable about me than this kind of stuff. Now, there's, there's a really good article that I, I will have to link to in the uh, descri- the show description by a historian and professor at Vanderbilt University. Uh, His name is uh, Yoshikuni Igarashi. I'll I'll, I'll put his article in the uh, show description. And according to him, these two leftist groups were not really ideological, all that compatible, um, kind of different strains of communist, socialist thought, apparently. Uh, There are also apparently some gender dynamic things going on. Um, The Red Army faction... I'm pretty sure that got I'm pretty sure I've got these right. The Red Army faction was more patriarchal. Um all the leaders of the Red Army faction were men. And the Revolutionary Left was more progressive on gender politics. Uh, One of the most important, maybe the top leader of the Revolutionary Left, was a woman. But anywho, these are the two somewhat incompatible groups who decided to team up because. Each one had something that the other one needed. So the Red Army faction, remember they had done all the robberies, their Operation M. Red Army faction has cash. Revolutionary left had the literal firepower from the gun shop in Tochigi that they robbed. Both groups were being hunted by the police, so they decided to team up, pool their resources, pool their manpower, and... That is where we're going to stop here. Wait, no, it's not where I have to stop. Let's take a little brief sidebar before we, before we end today. Okay. It's probably not going to be that brief. I can't keep things brief. I'm sorry. But let's take a little sidebar here and talk very briefly as possible about what exactly the far left in Japan was all about. A lot of the complaints of the far left in Japan of the 60s and 70s were probably pretty familiar to anyone who knows about leftist movements around the world at that time, in particular. There were the student leftists who felt that the universities were just there to reinforce the state's power. Right? There were those who were against the monarchy. That's a pretty common theme with a lot of leftists. Um, There was a lot of anti-capitalist thought as well, no surprise. I mean, Japan was, remember not that far from the end of World War II, and they were having to retool the entire country, the entire economy. And in doing so, the country and a lot of the people here were very much buying into capitalism and all that comes with it. And at least some people were becoming disillusioned with all those changes in you know just 20, 25 years that had passed since the end of the war. and. And then again, here's something from uh, from Yoshikuni Igarashi, the, the the scholar at Vanderbilt, as he points out in his article, the success of the middle class in Japan in this period kind of undermined a lot of the left's message, which is part of why one of the reasons why the, kind of the popularity kind of dwindled as, as the '60s wore on, because by the late 1960s, something like 90 percent of the public felt as though it was part of the middle class, which was a significant increase from the early nineteen fifties, when the working class definitely they were the working class in the nineteen fifties did not feel like they were the middle class, which was a lot better for the leftists who said communism's the way, capitalism's bad. Right? But if peop- if 90% of the public says, hey, I'm middle class, capitalism is helping me, then the communist rhetoric about the working class being oppressed kind of starts to fall flat for a lot of people. Again, check out this article. It is academic, but it's in a very readable way academic. However, for the left, there were also grievances against a perceived police state, which, for our story here, is actually most important. And... The complaints against the police state were pretty well received. Even I, I mentioned pretty early, early in the story, right? At the leftist, stu- the, the student who's considered himself right wing, but still supported what the sympathized. I think "supports" not the right word. Sympathized with these leftist movement uh, members, but yeah. So these the, the complaints against the police state were pretty well received. Say even in, in the general public. So long as those grievances were presented without violence, right? That's a key point here. Because the reason, a big reason why they were well received is because Japan was, and I mean, I think pretty, you can argue pretty convincingly now, remains a highly surveilled country, a very surveilled society. And as the beliefs of, you know, of the leftists, the new left in Japan, as they grew and stretched, you know, their, their beliefs. The new left fractured even more and more, and all manner and more and more extreme beliefs began to appear, including something called anti-Japanism, which is the belief that Japan's actions since the Meiji period have been tainted by imperialism and that a new regime is needed. Right? These are pretty standard anti-government, anti-monarchal beliefs. Because Japan... At this point, yeah, the emperor is only a figurehead post World War II. But from the Meiji period up to the end of World War II, Japan is a monarchy, right? I mean, it goes goes back long, long way before the Meiji period, but right, Japan is a monarchy, and so anti monarchal feelings pretty common in the in the in the left, and the anti-Japanism. Everything Japan has done since eighteen sixty eight is in pain is tainted by imperialism, and we need to get rid of the Japanese government and just start over again with the Japanese government. Again, pretty standard leftist. But that further evolved into anti-Japaneseism. Now, anti-Japaneseism is the belief that Japanese people, as a race, are evil. And that evil must be wiped off the face of the earth. And now I was, I was reading something that said it's been compared to anti-Semitism, except that the people who are espousing these anti-Japanese, anti-Japaneseism beliefs are actually members of that group being denounced. So it's kind of this weird, it's, it's this extreme version of anti-Japanism, Japanism. But it's not just the, not just the government, it's the race of Japanese people are the problem. And Beliefs such as this, right, this led to Japanese terrorists. Again, this is something that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. I mean, this took me a while to fully really grok what was what was going on, right? Again, if you only know Japan of the late 80s, 90s, 2000s, the teens, this is just Japanese terrorists. Okay, left-wing Japanese terrorists. Sure. So, the Japanese leftists, they were involved in the bombings of several embassies in the late 80s, not late, early 80s, sorry, early 80s. There was a couple in the late 80s that they did too, but primarily the early 80s. There was a hostage situation in the U.S., uh, at the U.S. and Swedish embassies in Malaysia. Um, there was also a hijacking of an airplane by some leftists, um, who, in this group that did the hijacking in Vu, it involved one of the, one of the, the members was a, Former member of this psych rock noise rock band called the Rari's Denud, which is in Japanese, Hadaka no Rari's. Um, yeah. So, in this case, the hijackers demanded to be flown to North Korea, and some of them still live there to this day, including, I think, this former member of this psych rock noise rock band. I think he still lives in North Korea. If I remember correctly, um, there's kind of an interesting YouTube documentary about, about this band. Um, again, not really all that con- you know, connected to what we're talking about today, just the far, this far left. Um, but yeah, so that, that was one thing. But perhaps the most infamous act of terrorism by members of Japan's far left was the Lode Airport Massacre, where, where 26 people were killed and 79 were injured at the Lod Airport in Tel Aviv. I think it's Ben Gurion Airport now. Um, The attack was conceived by a Palestinian group, which then recruited members of Japan's far left to carry it out. Again, that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. But yeah, the new left movement in Japan had quite a few extremists who were willing to commit acts of terrorism. And that is where we will end this story for today. Because episode two, uh, which is the gonna be the sad, terrible episode with lots of violence and dying happening, that involves kind of some terrorism against themselves. Um But yeah, that's episode two. If you want to skip that one, I I I will understand. I won't I won't hold that against you. Um episode three, we'll get back to the less terrible part of the story. So if you'd prefer to skip over episode two, I understand. Again, I will make sure that you can follow the story with a non-violent recap at the top of episode three. So if you want to skip two, fine, listen to episode three. But again, episode two, I'm not going to go into really graphic detail or anything, but just know it does involve violence and quite a lot of death. Um, again, this is a side of Japan that I think very few people outside of the country especially you know here in 2021 in 2021 i don't think a lot of people are aware of this part of japan's history you know japan's image from the 1980s on the go go era of let's buy let's let's be all business let's buy everything let's be going to discos and things cuz that was a big thing too in the 80s in japan anyway um not disco, as in the music, but disco, as in discotech, as in the dance club. Um, yeah, I, I I will admit that I was kind of surprised um, when I learned about all of this about this these leftists. I mean, I, I was a ri- I was almost going to say I was floored by this information, but honestly, I, I I can't say I was floored because I knew that Japan had gone. That had, 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 undergone a lot of change in the 40, 50 years following World War II. So, like I say, I can't, I can't go so far as to say I was floored by the information. Um, I'll just leave it at, I was surprised by the extent of the leftist movement in the 60s and early 70s. So, anywho, that is where we'll leave it for the first part of our story. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever it is that you cast your pods. This podcast is, of course, available on most major platforms. Um, on Apple, Google, uh, Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, if you're in the U.S. I think probably probably Canada, too. North Pandora works. I, I don't know exactly where is available. I can't access it without a VPN myself. But you can get it if you're in the U.S. without a VPN. If you have a VPN, you can get it anywhere in the world. But anyway... If it's not on your favorite podcasting platform, let me know, and I will look into getting it on that platform. You can find the Twitter for this podcast at justanothercast, and you can email the show at uh, Podcast at gmail.com, and you can find all this information and more on the website tinyurl.com slash jerkpod. And I promise I will get around to updating and improving the website someday. Summer break's coming up fairly soon, so maybe. Uh, But that's all for me for today. I'm Jonathan Isaacson, and I'm out. Peace.